I don't know. But the disturbing thing was that in his personal property that he had at the police station, the police showed me, was a pair of overalls and he called them his killing overalls. Whoa. So he would he was wearing overalls when he killed his father with an axe. Welcome to Crime Scene Gold Coast with Guardian Criminal Law. My name's Mark Savick. I'm the principal of Guardian Criminal Law and we'll be bringing you podcasts weekly. A variety of uh, topics that can be very sensitive, so please be careful when you're listening and uh, if you need any assistance at all, we'll include a lifeline number at the bottom of the page. Really appreciate you subscribing and liking our podcast channel. You can uh, listen to us across most social media platforms, Spotify, uh, YouTube, uh, TikTok, and uh, you'll find us there. We look forward to bringing you many episodes in the future. Hi, Colin. How are you? Marcus, I'm really well. Great. I've been really excited to do this podcast with you uh, today. So we've been talking about it for a little while. Well, we've been friends for a long time we've too. Been, well, more than friends, and brothers. I think. Yes, and you've been a very kind and valuable mentor to me and continue to be, so I appreciate that. I appreciate Just a minute, that you're ageing me, mate. I'm not sure about <laughs> that. Give me a break here. Don't worry, I'm starting to cop it too, mate. <laughs> I'm in the line too. Tell us a little bit. You've been practising criminal law here at the Gold Coast for how many years? Oh, gosh, I was admitted in 1968. 1968. Yeah, and I, I joined a law firm down here on the Gold Coast, um, really bizarre group of people. And then we became Short Punch and Greatrix after that, myself yep. and John Punch and Ian Short. John's passed was, away. Was that over at Bundle? Like I remember. It was, the, yes, yeah, it was. Yep. We were in, actually, to start with, we were in the middle of service paradise. And I used to go to work in caftans. I had hair down on my shoulders. And <laughs> I was full till hippie. Yeah. But um, acted for yeah. some really interesting clients, very interesting clients. Yeah. We weren't run-of-the-mill people. Mm. John Punch and I flattered together, and John was extremely Catholic. He's got a couple of brothers who are priests, wow. whereas I was on the other side of the fence and just out there. Okay. okay. <laughs> and practicing criminal law in surface. I was doing criminal so law in surface. From the early 70s, late 60s. That's it. Late, very early 70s, right through. Tell us what the landscape looked like in the um, late in, well, at that time. It, it was really interesting because I had a couple of clients that ran clothing stores and they got busted smoking a bit of pot. The police went around there one day. It was a minute amount. But we went to court and I'll never forget it. The magistrate was saying, this is terrible. You're growing cannabis, etc." The plants were like two inches tall. Yeah, yeah. And he could see them as six foot plants. Yeah, okay. And he belted my client really, really badly. Oh, no. Mm. Oh, no. So I remember... Uh, back in the 80s, and I think more so in the 70s, but I was, I was a little bit young, that there was a reputation here in Queensland. If you came across the border in a panel van from New South Wales, <laughs> yeah. watch out, you might never be going home to mum. That's true. <laughs> that was always the way, always the way. And, and traditionally more strict with that drug sort of. Yeah, they were. Mm. Mind you, I was doing, also doing radio work on 4GG in those days too. I was known as the 4GG lawyer. And uh, I think I might have mentioned this to you before, but I was out to lunch one day with some clients, and this good-looking young man walked across to me and said, excuse me, are you the 4GG lawyer? Because in those days, you had to have your head covered on, on the Gold Coast Bulletin, I just the outline of my head. Okay. Uh, but it was all camouflaged. Yeah, yeah. And I said, uh, yes. He said, I recognize your voice. I said, thanks very much. He said, I thought you'd be about six foot tall and built like a brick shithouse. He said, you're a midget. So I thought, give me a break, you know. But it's, tell us some of, you're going to tell me about a particularly interesting matter that you had. Yeah. Um, Back then I acted for a guy who's passed away, so I can mention the name now, a fellow called Linus Patrick Driscoll, Jimmy Driscoll. And Jimmy started a nightclub on the Gold Coast with a guy called Rex McAdam, Bicky McAdam. And Bicky used to buy guns for the criminals in New South Wales. And Bicky had a mate who was a, uh, uh, a bookie, off-the-record bookie. But Jimmy Driscoll bought into the property and became owner of the nightclub. Um, and he was a wonderful client, but he was a toe-cutter bandit. What's that? What's well, the toe, the toe cutter cutters, what they did was there was a group of them in New South Wales and they would find out which people did robberies and they'd go around and abduct the people who committed the robberies and say, look, give us, give us 50% of what you've, uh, what you've just scored and we'll let you go. 
And if they didn't, they'd strap them down and cut their toes off. And then they'd go through and dismember them because by that stage they didn't need them anymore. So I, I think I saw an interview with Mark Reed, Mark Chopper Reed. Mm. I don't know if he was involved in that sort of thing, but he where he was talking well, about cutting people's toes off with a bolt cutter. Well, that's right. Well, and Jim, how they popped off. Uh, like he, Jimmy, Jimmy was that was one of those guys. But a lovely, and I didn't know that. I got a call from uh, John Meskell, who was a detective at Cool and Gatter, to come down and meet with them. Uh, I meant went down. I thought he had other matters to discuss with me, and I was happy to do that. But. Um, he introduced me to Roger Rogerson and Noel Morey, and Noel was the senior sergeant, an old guy, and Roger Rogerson, whom you know, mm. is in jail now. He's killed a lot of people as a detective. But uh, I went in to sit with them. Uh, it was late in the afternoon, and John Maskell left, and I was sitting there with Roger Rogerson and Noel Morey. And Noel Morey reached behind, pulled out a thirty-two police revolver and put it on the table. It had notches on the handle. I oh thought, you've got, and this is so B grade. Give me a break, boys. Oh, wow. Yeah. But I felt like I was up on a raft, uh, and Rogerson was the shark going around the outside of the raft. He didn't stop walking the whole time. Wow. But they pulled out some photographs and showed me and explained to me that there was, these were people that my client had killed, criminals that they'd killed. And I said, look, I don't know anything about it. Not interested at all. Uh, anyway, the, the, the thing finished. And the first thing I did was when I got back was to ring Jimmy and say, you've got a problem. These blokes are up from New South Wales. But it's got, there's a client loyalty, yeah. as obvious there is, and you'd appreciate that. Mm. Um, and I said, I think you should get out of the country. So he did, bailed out for a couple of years, I think, and did some uh, assassination work in, in Israel, as I understand. Wow. Yeah, it was heavy stuff. But he worked for the Cray Brothers in London, and they were the nightclub owners, and they were maniacs. They went to jail for thirty odd years for stabbing people and shooting people and things like that. They've made major movie oh, about the well, Cray Brothers, definitely. And in fact, I'm halfway through my second novel now, which will evidence exactly what we're talking about. Okay, would be quite fascinating. Mm. But I went to a I went to a luncheon one day with Jimmy Driscoll, and not knowing who he was. But a delightful man, and he spoke with a, with an Irish accent. Anyhow, uh, we there was a guy at the. How uh, did he present, Cole? What did he look like? His stature. Very ordinary guy, uh, between you and I in stature. He's quite a solid bloke. Had mutton chop whiskers down to here. Very old style. Okay. Beetle haircut, pulled back, etc. Yeah, yeah. Very presentable, very presentable, but a lovely bloke. So I took him to the lunch, the the sip and sup club, it was called, and we we're at the top of the ten having lunch, and suddenly I spotted this bloke who'd been avoiding me for weeks to avoid being served with a summons. I thought, he's here now, I've got to get him. <laughs> okay. So I rang up my clerk, Dennis Lynch, who was, who was Mr. Queensland, built like a brick shit house. Okay, was, yeah, yeah. And I get, get over here, Dennis. So Dennis turned up, walked in, I said, there he is there. Dennis slapped him with the paper, <laughs> the, with the summons, uh, got him, and... Uh, Anyway, we went across to the, the Bird Watchers Bar, which was a little bar in Cavill Avenue after, I, I, I after lunch. Yeah. So I'm having drinks. I went to get to the bar to get a drink for Jimmy and myself. And these two heavyweights approached me. And they were bloke in the, I was only 28, and they were blokes in their late 30s, early 40s, and heavy, heavy boys. And they said, we didn't like what you did with that summons. And I said, well, get stuffed. I've got a client responsibility. I said, my clients come first. I don't know you guys. I don't want to know you. They are getting really, really unpleasant. And all of a sudden, over my shoulder, this voice comes and says, Ah, Colin, have you got a wee bit of a problem here? Can I help you? <laughs> and these guys recognized Jimmy and they crapped themselves. Wow. They said, Oh, no, no, everything's okay. Don't worry. Colin's already had a job to do. Backed right off. And Jimmy said, Well, let me tell you this. He said, If you've got a problem with Colin, you've got a problem with me. <laughs> <laughs> they fainted. But it was after that that I had the Noel Morey exercise with the coppers, et cetera, and they told me about Jimmy. But he was a lovely client, a really nice guy, and he protected me. What 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 happened with him? So, so he went to Israel. Jimmy went back he? and uh, he did some more work in Israel, and then he went to London and did some more work around London, snuffing people, I assume. Well. But he came back to Australia and he had a, a, a meet-up with another client of mine called Bertie Kidd. Bertie spent a lot of time in prison. There was going to be a shootout because one of them acted for painters and dockers. The other one was with an alternative group of people. But unfortunately, they never got to meet each other. 
I met Bertie in prison when he was arrested up here. But Jimmy ended up, uh, spent time, I think, for killing somebody. I think he got about eight years, left, got out of jail, but then subsequently had a heart attack and died. Whereas Bertie's still alive. But they never got to meet. There was going to be a shootout outside the pub. Wow, so Bertie's still alive. Bertie's still alive. Bertie's in his late 80s, early 90s now. And I ring him occasionally. And he's a lovely guy, once again. They were straight up and down people with me. Well, you, you'd have that experience, Mark. You've acted for some tough people. Yes. But if they think you're in trouble, they come around to protect you. I know my clients did. Yeah, I have acted for some tough people and mostly pretty decent. Like they've got some, a set of values and usually they've got people who love them and they yeah. love as well. I've only ever, you know, the, somebody really evil. I've only ever come across that a couple of times. I don't know about yourself in No, I haven't. Your I've, they've always been back. Who have you had that's been positively evil that you felt uncomfortable with? I had a fellow several years ago. I um, Now, the circumstances of how this eventuated are a little bit cloudy in my mind because I didn't end up carrying through with the matter entirely. Mm. So I was called to the police station to um, to interview a client who had just recently be, been taken into custody, very serious criminal charges. Mm. And How uh, old was he? He was in his 60s. He would have been in his... And mid, how, how mid, old, mid how old were, you, were you in those days? Uh, I would have been in my early 30s. Okay. And so this fellow was in his late six, mid to late 60s, but he looked like he was about 45, 50. Mm. Very, very fit. And the reason for that was that he'd been in jail for the previous 22 years. Pushing weights, yeah. Yeah, he'd been in jail for the previous 22 years. So 22 years previous to this, he was jailed for killing his own father. Mm. And that was in Western Australia. And he served uh, served the time for that, and he then did full time, yeah, did full time for that. Um, then when he got out, he moved over to northern New South Wales, where he tracked down that he had some distant family, mm. and this distant family was he an indigenous bloke or not? Uh, I, I don't want to go into that. All right, I don't, for for you know for reasons of confidentiality, I and, and it's quite sensitive sort of material. I understand. Um, so. He came back and for some reason, the family that he had tracked down, there, were, there was a, a lady that was in her 30s, her young daughter and her daughter's boyfriend and her nephew. They were all sharing a property and she was somehow distant, distantly related to him. And so Uncle John gets out of jail and he tracks them down and comes over to northern New South Wales and that's all in the family past. It's that long ago yeah. that there's that nobody's accounting for it at all. You know, it's just Uncle Johnny got out of jail. You know, he had trouble Did in the past. Did they know what he'd been charged with? I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But the disturbing thing was that in his personal um, uh, property that he had at the police station, the police showed me was a pair of overalls and he called them his killing overalls. Whoa. So he would... He was wearing overalls when he killed his father with an axe. And so he'd been waiting to get out of jail and goodness knows what so demons. So was his dad's blood on, had, the, on the overalls or no, his? No, they would have been destroyed. They would have been taken evidence and destroyed. This is a new pair, but he's okay. replaced the killing overalls. So he requires a pair of killing overalls in his kit, right? Charming. So he's come out of jail and he, he's already predetermined that he's going to be killing people. Um, so he, he starts living with this distant family on their property. And one night he says to the, um, so I think it's the, the young lady, her daughter, the son-in-law was outside, the niece was inside. Uh, the son-in-law was outside and he was explaining to the son-in-law that he'd, he had the killing overalls on at this stage and they're sitting at a, around a fire in the backyard and explained to him how he had to kill the ladies inside. Um, he'd, he's dressed now in his killing overalls. He had an axe with him and um, that he would also have to kill him as well. Good grief. Now, the young, the young man, thankfully, the young man said, no, he, he, he played a sort of psychological game and said, no, I hate them too. I want to help you. And so he sort of stalled the old bloke, so he said, I've got to go and get my overalls on. And he, and he went up to the house and he said, call the police straight away, wow. lock yourself in, I'll keep him busy down at the 
at the fire mm. and they went down to the fire where he was sharpening the axe and then was offering the file to the young bloke to go and get his axe from the wood heap and sharpen it as well before they go and kill their family. And it was absolutely nothing that to That is terrifying. A- absolutely terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. So I, I went and I interviewed him. Of course, there was you know no opportunity at bail. And uh, the matter then travelled on to another solicitor within the organisation I was working with. Tell me this: How are you? How have you and I maintained our sanity during this period of time? I mean, I've approached it on the basis that I've got a sense of gallows humour. Yep. If you you know what I'm saying. Yes, absolutely. That we're watching people guillotine and goodness knows what else, and you've got yep. to have that that degree of gallows humour. I think. Yep. Because you've got loved ones you go home to at night, and I do as well. How have you maintained that? Uh, not very well sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not very well sometimes, mm. to be honest. I uh, experienced uh, some depression and anxiety around work on several occasions. So mm. I've had occasions where I've had to t- take time off doing this work. Mm. Um, I remember having a case many years ago and uh, unfortunately the fellow who I was uh, representing uh, – I was successful in the in the case, so the outcome was favourable to my client, but it shouldn't have been. And it was as a result of prosecution failing to see a few things. You know, mm. everybody can make a mistake, but this is a pretty heavy mistake and it wore very heavily on me. I had to have two years off. I walked away from the law for two that's years. That's incredible, Mark. So yeah, that's, so I know that's exactly what you're saying. Yeah, that's happened to me twice Yeah, um, in the past and and I've walked away from it. And then I, use, I go and I work in usually adult education, which is really satisfying because you're empowering people. So that sort mm. of fulfills you quite a bit. But the it's going to sound like so cliche. No, The, the thing that helps the most is exercise and good food. Well, that's true. That's, that's the thing that helps the most whereas, with me. Whereas my let out was doing radio talkback work back in the, those days when I was on air. But also I had a very successful rock and roll band that I played in. Great. I was the front man in that band. We travelled all around the place. Yeah. Um, some funny things happened in the band. But one of the interesting things I happened, as you know, I live in the country. I won't go into where I live, but yeah. I live in the country. And I'd remarried and I've got a young wife and uh, my, my son is only about two or three. And lo and behold, up the road, uh, there are two murders. The young bloke had been dragged out of the house. He'd been opened up from his groin to his throat with his intestines taken out and dumped on him and left in the in the backyard. Oh, God. The other young How girl. How old? Oh, he would have been about 24, 25. Okay, the, the victim. Bloke, yeah, the okay. Victim. Yep, yep, yep. His girlfriend or young woman, she'd worked in a brothel and I used to act for the brothel keeper. I yeah. knew the brothel keeper quite well, and I went down to address these girls on the rights and the wrongs, what they could do and what they couldn't do. Yeah. She was about 17 going on for 18, and when they found her, the police found her, she'd had her head cut from ear to ear right through to the to the spine. So she was inside, and he was outside with his guts all over him. And uh, as it turned out, it was suggested there was a certain um, element motorcycle element that might have been involved with it, drugs trafficking and things of that nature. But it was about that time that I was approached to see whether I might like to represent certain criminal organisations. And I thought, this is not good. I'm living in the country. I've got a young wife, a young child. So I suggested, no, look, I'll never be able to get down to where you need to be uh, if you're arrested. I just won't have the time to get off the area that I'm at. So I declined and stepped aside. But that was a bizarre situation. Wow. The guy that ran the, the the brothel was a Chinese fellow married to a, a European lady, and he used to wear Chinese outfits on, like the the, the Fu the Manchu silk, outfits, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 and have his hands folded in between the, the sleeves, you know, with yeah. a, with a beret on. I think he was a bit of a wanker, quite frankly, yeah. looking at it now. <laughs> but um, I met went down to meet these young women. About young kids, and what he used to do was to he'd hire these girls out to Chinese male tourists who came to Australia. So instead of us, for example, being a European going over and having a, an affair with a Chinese girl, it reversed the role. Oh, yeah. The Chinese blokes coming to Australia would have a, a young white girl to have sex with. Right. 
was a bizarre situation. We did, we've done some unusual things, haven't we, mate? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, there's a, uh, a matter that I was going to talk to you about, mm. really interesting. It's, not, it's nothing bizarre. or It's bizarre in its own certain way. Yeah. So I, um, I was introduced to a fellow through another fellow I know. He gave me a call and he says, look, I've got a mate. He's in a bit of trouble. He's just been arrested on uh, sus- suspicion of imp- importation of, um, of drugs. Mm. And, uh, and I thought, yeah, that's the sort of work I do. So I, I went and uh, met with this fellow and made a release application and got him out of In New South Wales, was, was it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yep. yeah, in New South Wales. And I got him out of jail. And so our journey started from there. And he was charged with importation of drugs uh, through aircraft movements into Australia. Okay. And this fellow presents as just a lovely family man. Uh, there's, you know, no face tattoos or other things <laughs> as, that we sometimes some associate, have, yeah. associate with that sort of criminality. But he was just a very straight-looking guy. You, he was the sort of guy you'd expect to run into at the library. Okay. Not at the pub playing pool or, you know, at any other sort of place. So very uh, straight-laced in appearance. But what he'd been doing seemed extremely out of character because it was so fraught with danger. You know, when you think about some of the people we represent and some of the things that they have been involved in, such as armed robbery, for Mm. example, I can't imagine what sort of fortitude it must take or desperation or being... Affected by drugs or alcohol, which we see. Was it the thrill? To actually do that. Was it the thrill? That's all it was. Yeah. And so he, uh, this fellow at a very young age, started displaying highly unusual behaviour, behaviour that showed that his tolerance for fear is just out of this world. Now, uh, most people have seen proximity flying. I've been a skydiver for many years Mm. and there's proximity flying and base jumping. These are pursuits that demand <clears throat> extreme courage, a lot of planning, a lot of expertise, skill, experience, but a lot of courage. That It's just incredible to think that you'd be standing Well, you're facing death, aren't you? Totally facing death. And these guys that are doing the proximity flying and base jumping, there's no reserve shoot. Everything's <laughs> got to be right. Everything's <laughs> got to be right. One thing goes wrong. You want to make sure you wrong. pack it well, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. So this fellow started displaying some behaviours at a young age that would indicate that he had an extreme tolerance for fear. I don't know if you did when you were a kid. I did jump off the roof with a beach umbrella to see it was like a parachute. <laughs> well, this guy, he'd like jump off the fifth storey with a beach umbrella, you know, oh. and not even bat an eyelid, like, you yeah. know, for example. Yeah. But he was one of the pioneers of base jumping in Australia mm. and he did some incredible base jumps, including jumping off the Sydney Harbour Bridge, base jumping off the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Was he prosecuted for that as a matter of interest? No, but he was. He had done many of those illegal sorts of yes. jumps, which yes. he does not participate in anymore. All right. When he was very young in his teens, out in country outback where he was living with his parents, he uh, built himself an ultralight and flew at school. I think he was 15. Wow. So very technically minded, mathematically minded, engineer. What a two-stroke that was skilled. Bought, yeah. Bought a second-hand, some second-hand broken down like a, a, a hang glider with a motor wow. on it. Did it all up, flew it to school, right? That's that's, pretty, sort of, that's cool. That, that Very, very cool, right? Very, very cool. So he ends up being uh, becoming a professional pilot and doing um, – providing pilot services in a range of environments. Mm. He wasn't flying for commercial airlines, but he was a commercial air pilot, a commercial pilot flying lighter aircraft, twin engine aircraft, sort of medium-sized aircraft, aircraft where there might take 10, 12 people, 20 people, uh, right down to single-engine, uh, two-seater aircraft, a very experienced across a broad range of aircraft. So he gets approached by some old schoolmates who have done quite well. They've become involved in retail, in shopping centres, in you know little community village sort of shopping centres. And, and these guys have done very well. And they have got some sinister ideas about importing drugs into Australia. What sort of drugs were they bringing in? 
ended up being methamphetamine, Ooh. cocaine, Ooh. and MDMA. Yeah. They were the three the three that they um, they finally identified. So they approach my client and say, look, we, we're seeing that you're trying to build your aviation business, which he had a hangar and a few planes, about five yeah. or six planes, and he's providing various sort of charter services, bits and pieces, but he was doing it for the love of it. He just absolutely adores flying, whether it's jumping out of a plane or off a cliff or flying a plane, that's where he's, his happy spot. And he doesn't feel like he's in any danger whatsoever at any time. There's no sense of that whatsoever. So they uh, approach him and say, look, we've seen what you're doing. We've got a bit of spare money. We'd really like to assist you in building your aviation business. And we'd like to invest some money in you because we know what sort of a go-getter you are. You know, we just love you, mate. You know, you can trust us. Mm. We don't have to sign any papers. Everything's going to be good. And um, so my fellow's gone, fantastic. (laughs) That's great, you know. Let's do it. Let me backpedal too. Um, He also, he was also experiencing some personal health issues at the time that this happened. So... He does say to me later on, he goes, look, of course I smelled a rat. The offer's too good to be true. But I thought it was sometimes you just get really lucky. And if I just do my part, all I'm doing is flying planes. That's what they've told me I'm doing. And they're helping me with my business. But the deal was that they'd purchase a plane somewhere overseas. They'd tell him how they wanted to be flown in, where it needed to stop. Uh, And it always conveniently had to stop in a Southeast Asian country. And it was stopped there for like two or three days. And then where he needed to come in um, and where the aircraft needed to end up. And then his part of the deal was he gets to keep the aircraft. Oh, right. And they'd give him a bonus as well. Life is good. And doing some really incredibly exciting stuff. And he's not aware of what's being packed in the plane when it lands wherever it lands. He's not aware of what it is, but... He smells a rat. Yeah. You know, everything's too good to be true, but he feels that he's distanced himself well enough away from it. Um, And all he's interested in is the excitement of the moving of the planes. It's just incredible. So they purchased this plane in Canada, and it's a medium-sized aircraft that has the capacity to fly from North America to Australia as long as you follow a certain route. So they've planned a route. So it's a twin-engine aircraft, not a single-engine. Twin-engine aircraft. Yeah. So they've planned a route from Canada coming across through Hawaii. I think it's then Guam, Philippines. Then they're into Southeast Asia. Then they're coming into Australia. So they're sort of going to hop across the Pacific. Apparently, it's a quite well-flown route because there is that sort of business going on. Does he have often. a passenger with him, a co-pilot or something? Yes, a very unfortunate man indeed. Oh. A very unfortunate man indeed. Oh, right. So. This doesn't all go well, Mark. This doesn't go well, not well at all. (laughs) So in uh, Canada, they go through the process, they purchase the aircraft, and now we start getting into realms of having issues with, uh, because the aircraft had origins from the United States, the FBI, DEA, and Homeland Security, Canadian authorities Mm. all started to get involved. And you know what? They started to get involved from the aspect of money laundering because the nature in which the aircraft was purchased and where the money was oh, flown okay. from. And okay. that carries 15 years in, in the United States in a federal prison. And 15 years federal prison in the United States isn't 15 years parole after five. Mm. It's 15 years. You've mm. got to do the whole time. right? So that raised problems later on down the track with issues of extradition. So you're going to take off from Canada. And... They're just about ready, and what they've done is they've basically they've turned the aircraft into a bomb. So they've removed all of the seats and put in two big plastic fuel bladders. So if all you can right. picture this like 15-seat aircraft, it's now only got two seats in the front, and the whole fuselage is filled with these rubber bladders containing uh, Avgas so, or Jet A1. He has a turboprop aircraft, so, so <coughs> Jet A1 fuel, bomb. which is... Flying bomb, yeah, it's full of kero- basically Whoa. really high-octane kerosene, you know. Have they got chutes inside the, the aircraft? No, they won't. You can have – pilots often have the uh, slimline chutes 
that they wear, but they're not wearing them on uh, in this particular setup. So <clears throat> they're about to take off. The authorities come around and go, you're not going anywhere. You can't fly that plane with those bladders just floating around in the back like that. You guys are crazy. They have to be in some sort of racking system. You need to build something or have something to in contain the aircraft them. to contain them yeah. so they're contained. So off they go to the local hardware, cordless drill, screws, timber, and they build like these crates, these fr big giant fruit crates. Imagine these giant fruit crates yeah. built from fucking pine, right? <laughs> and they put them in there. The authorities come around and I think they just went, oh, just go, just fucking go. And as long as you get over the border. But these were the problem. airport authorities, not the, not the feds. No, airport authorities, okay. the aviation authorities. Yeah. yeah. So they said, okay, you can go. So they're looking at the weather. And the weather's closing in across the Pacific. So my mate says, don't worry, i got this. And he's got a guy with him who he's paid to come over to help him move the plane from Australia. Not a close friend, but a professional ferry pilot, mm. a guy that does this work. So, And my fellow had done it a few times, flying planes in, but he had nowhere near as seasoned as this other gentleman, a very well respected in the industry for being a ferry pilot. And so he was hired to go to the United to go to Canada and help bring that plane across. So he goes, no problem. We're going to fly up over Alaska, come down over the Aleutians, land in Japan, <laughs> got to refuel somewhere in the Aleutians in Japan, and then from Japan jump down into Southeast Asia. So then they hit bad weather over Alaska. They reckon the weather, the turbulence was horrendous, and it was that horrendous that the crates in the back of the aircraft splintered and broke. So now you're flying along. And with fuel those, leakage at that point? No point? fuel leakage, no rupture of the bladders, thankfully. Wow. But now you've got splintered timber in the back with the fuel bladders. Going. No. When they landed in Japan, the ferry pilot left the aircraft, said he would never, ever be <laughs> returning. Do not ever call him. He's not available for future <laughs> engagements. So... My fellow's totally undeterred. He he think when he talks about this, you can see his eyes light up mm. like he was having the most fun that anyone could possibly have. Yeah. So they end up flying into Southeast Asia and Because there were three people on board, was it? Like the, the two. Only the two. The the guy that bailed out that didn't want to fly. So that left only one then? That's right. So your client yes. is the only flyer. Yeah. So he calls an old mate of his from Queensland who's a cat works on a cattle station yeah. and he's Pretty handy. Yes. <laughs> One of those folks, pretty handy. Yeah. He should be fine. Yeah. Pays for him to go fly to Tokyo. <laughs> Good God. Oh, Nagoya, is it? I forget. Anyway, he's got to fly over to Japan, joins him in Japan. This guy has spent zero hours in light aircraft. Like he's just the mate who's handy, right? He's coming over. And they travel into Southeast Asia. The plane is then left unattended for three days. And during those three days, there were things done to the plane. Mm. They then fly in to Australia, pass through customs without any problem at all, including sniffer dogs. So the setup was pretty tight. Um, and they unloaded whatever was in the plane. They actually unloaded it. Unloaded whatever was in the plane. And then the plane travelled to a regional airport in, uh, in Australia. Mm where it sat in a hangar. And this is how it all comes undone. So this has been going on for a little while. Everybody's good. Everybody's happy. There's no issues at all. No one's got any concerns. These guys are doing very well in their other businesses and they hire a young fellow to distribute what they're importing mm. through the city in larger lots for distribution so they're, they're like a wholesale type of yep. situation and the young bloke who they'd hired well he was getting rewarded quite well so he's gone invested in, in a brand new v8 holden ute black lowered to the ground draw the crap to, to the ground and he's got his hat backwards and the tinted no, windows and he's no. doing burnouts no. burnouts at the traffic lights in Parramatta. ugly and he's got 22 kilos of meth in the back. Get out. No, get out. That's insane. 
Absolutely, right? So he, so he be- comes undone. So he comes undone. So before you know it, the aircraft's under surveillance. My bloke's under surveillance. And he goes to move the aircraft. He's going to fly it from one place to another. And they pounce. Zero residue found on the aircraft. So they do but those tests where they do swab tests. Mm. Right? Mm. Zero residue of anything found in the aircraft. Anyway. There was other evidence that they had uh, discovered. Um, and did the young bloke rat them out? Well, I'm not sure, mm. but my bloke never did. My bloke always accepted his part as being a pilot, and there was other evidence. And so our journey begins, like my journey and his journey begins, and we're together for a couple of years, and he's just, like you were saying before, it's a really, really nice guy, really yeah. lovely, lovely guy. I'd love to have him as a neighbour and, and a friend. But like, they, the people that you and I have met, there are some baddies, don't get me wrong, Yeah, people that I, I didn't like to, but a lot of them have got certain integrity in them and they and they're, they're unassailable and so it's sometimes it's just circumstantial sort of stuff you know you could be in the same situation yourself just yeah. for a couple of different turns correct so so i get called in on it and one of the first things i've got to deal with is the fbi homeland security dea they want to extradite him so he does his 15 before he did even you get to meet the, any of those blokes yes so the fbi that that was very interesting. Mm. So the FBI, it's like something out of a movie. The representative who I had to deal with was a Texan bloke, about six foot four. <laughs> no, I'm not joking, mate. Handsome as all get out, wearing the boots. He wasn't wearing the hat. All right. He was wearing the boots. So the first time I've got to meet this guy, this agent from the FBI, it's organised for us to go to one of the major airports in Australia. We had to wait there. Our... Once our plane had landed, <clears throat> we were to wait there in the lounge and then I received a message. And the message was, yep, yeah, we'd like to meet at such and such address in 30 minutes. It's just like from the movies, like mm. from one of these secret spy movies. Mm. So you go, okay, we jump into uh, the high car and off we go. We pull up outside this address. We've got a number we call, call the number, and then they give us another address and then another. And you know where we end up? Where? Back at the airport, in a bar at the airport. So through security and in one of the bars after you get – so we had to go back to the airport, back through security. So maybe we were being watched. I'm you, not sure the reason. I was about to say, you would have been observed the whole time. Yeah, yeah. And I think they were very concerned because of the quantities involved and they mm. probably were concerned about the complexity of the organisation. And so we meet there in a public place. And I can see that my client has become quite excited about what's going on. This is – it's it's movie drama. It's fantastic, right? And I said to him before we go and sit down, I said, mate. Like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance yeah, Kid. I go, look, I said, today is for us to be listening. No talking today. We're mm. just listening, right? Seeing what the feel is. So sit down with this fellow. This fellow was so likable. Like, he was just such a really, he's such a likable man. He came across as a really beautiful man. And he sits down and he goes, ah. There's a bit of trouble. He goes, I don't want to talk about that. Let's just get to know each other, you know. But of course, he's been highly trained. It's he's seduction, a very, Mark. He's a very highly trained, Absolutely. you know, police or enforcement officer, you know, officer of the law, and he's like the head of operations in this city in uh, in Australia. So he represents the FBI mm. there. So he's obviously a very trusted and highly trained guy. So he starts talking about some operations they've got in Colombia where they've got these six uh, twin-engine jet aircraft, twin-engine jet aircraft, sitting on a tarmac full of machine guns and they need to move. They need like an, an agent, like undercover agent, to move those aircraft from one place to another. He's talking about and how my client and his skill base really fits the bill. Oh. <laughs> And I can see, I can see Your my bloke. is getting revved oh, up. He's just hit the excitement levels going <laughs> they through want the roof. Me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's thinking guns, shooting, flying jets. <laughs> what could be better? And he doesn't care about money. Doesn't care about money, conditions, deals, nothing. So, and he goes to talk, and I had to gra- I grabbed his leg underneath the table Squ- and squeezed it. it so hard and looked at him. <laughs> I swear he was going to start handing in resumes or something, yeah. you know. So we managed to, anyway, 
I learned, but he's a piston aircraft flyer, not a jet flyer. He's got endorsements for all sorts of things. If he hasn't got endorsements, he's got endorsements for jet aircraft, like all turboprop right. aircraft. Mm. But actual, so were they turboprop? Is that what they were describing as jet? Anyway, yeah. If he didn't, he, he would have. One. He could could have got an endorsement to fly that aircraft. Yeah. I think he could get an endorsement for anything. You know, he's got thousands of hours and. And so our journey started from there and I managed to keep him in the country and managed to help him over a couple of years. And he never ever, he never ever talked about anybody else's role. Mm. And uh, Did he actually serve time here too? A little bit. Okay. Yeah. Well, what yeah. a fortuitous person. How lucky to meet you. Well, and I was lucky to meet you. Did you get off today. on it too? I bet you did. I, it was exciting work to do every day. That's right. Absolutely. That's part of what draws me to the work. Yes. As you know, yeah. I, my financial motivation is very poor. <laughs> I get involved, I get in trouble for that. But uh, the work I love. Yeah, the work yeah. I love. So he was an incredibly interesting man. So involved in something pretty heavy, complicated, highly illegal across international boundaries. But I managed to get across to the court that it wasn't financial. It was purely as a result of his nature and it, the excitement just being irresistible Did to him. Did you get a psych test done on him at all Yeah. to explain his capacity? Yes, I can't remember the words That'd that they That'd be interesting, yeah. That they That'd be interesting. to explain. Yeah, it would be very interesting, yeah. So that's, a, that's a, a well, one that's... interesting one that I got and definitely not an evil guy, a really, really nice, a nice man who had a very interesting experience mm. and I was lucky enough to share it with him. Well, that's that's fascinating stuff. When I was travelling a lot, and I was heavily involved in my martial arts, I did my Black and Kyokushin Karate, which is full contact. It's not yeah. dancing around. It's punch, very much like Muay Thai, and also my Black and Kodokan Judo and Jiu Jitsu. And I was travelling up to Malaysia a lot, and I went to a dinner party one night. I was only in my late twenties. I went to a dinner party, and. Uh, Boring as batshit. I'd met some people who older people, and they were Canadian timber cutters. And there's a Chinese guy, their lawyer, Christopher Lai, and he's only a short guy. He said to me, uh, "Let's go and have a drink outside," which we did. Beautiful out outdoor area, quiet, peaceful. And he said, um, "Do you like Bruce Lee?" And I thought, I said, "You're joking." I said, "Bruce Lee, love him to bits." And I told Chris <laughs> about my background, so he dropped into this pose and did this amazing. They call it kata, K-A-T-A is the Japanese form word for it. Pattern is the the uh, the English word. Yeah. Anyway, lo and behold, uh, he said, why don't you come and train with me? So I did over the next six or eight months. I'd go back every three or four months, train, then come back to Australia. This is when it was short, punch and greater because I could travel in those days. Anyhow, uh, he said, I'd like you to meet my teacher, Mr. Quick, Sifu Quick. I thought, this is pretty cool. So I was invited to go along. Teacher didn't want to know me. I'm a white guy. I'm Guaylo. Guaylo means white ghost. Right. I'm okay. a white ghost. Because the Chinese, when the Europeans first came to China, they thought they were ghosts because they were light-skinned, etc. So Guaylo means white ghost. Anyway, I came back to Australia, did what I had to do, and then I get a message from Chris, can you come over again? He'd like Teacher would like to meet you again. So I went over and I just finished my black. Uh, grading and you do 41 and a half minute fights non-stop you start wow. off with light belts and you finish off with blokes who are black belts who've done nothing but stretch all day and wait to beat the shit out of you when you get there <laughs> so out of eight of us that went through myself and another mate of mine Lou Tracy were the only two that managed to get through Lou was about 110 115 kilos and I'm there 70 flat you know yeah, yeah. but anyway I had bits of bark off me all over the place so I Went along to the teacher and um, I'm getting changed in the, the area where you go to get changed, a rough area of town, really rough area. And our, our training area was upstairs in this building. Downstairs they've got mechanics and doing things, etc. So I'm getting changed and I'm looking around and all these Chinese blokes there are all in black outfits. And I suddenly realised I'm in fucking white Okay. I've got a karate gi on and I've got Japanese kanji on the side. Now, the Japanese did brutal things to the Chinese during yes. the Second World War. Yes. And I thought, oh, my God, this is not good. You know, they're all, they're all Bruce Lee's. I'm Chuck Norris. And, Ch <laughs> and Chuck, Chuck doesn't make it through the movie. So we went inside. The teacher's sitting there and he started to speak. He speak, spoke Hakka. 
And I speak a little bit of Cantonese, so I picked up some of it. His wife spoke Cantonese. And he's saying, oh, this is Go Lin, Colin. Uh, he's going to show us about karate. It's all straight line stuff. And I thought, no, it's not. Mine is roundhouse kicks, etc." So anyway, we lined up and he said, kick me. So he's dropped down. And he's only a short, nuggety guy uh, in his 50s. Um, probably about um, 80 or 90 kilos, but little fat guy. And I spun around and kicked him and it missed him and hit him in the mouth and split his lip open. Oh, I thought, no. oh, shit. I mean, this is not good. So I dropped down on my, on my knee and I said, Sifu Ngohap, Taipan Chong, meaning I'm an elephant. Now, I'd learned that from traveling along the borders up in Southeast okay. Asia. You know, I, I went up with the World Health Organization. As a surgeon, which I wasn't, that's, but that's another story. <laughs> anyway, he looked at me and then laughed and it did, he did it to save face. He said, fight. So suddenly, for the next hour and a half, I'm fighting for my life. With blokes coming from all angles, but a lot of them didn't know about takedowns. So I just hit them pretty hard around the gut or the thigh shot, drop them on the ground, choke them. That was the only way I was going to survive. Okay. And when it was finished, it was all over. Sifu, the Sifu left the area and I getting changed and Chris walked up and said, that didn't go well, did it? And I said, no, I'm really sorry. Then I get a call the next morning from Chris and he said, a teacher would like to meet you. So I went to teachers and we sat down. He passed me this little package and I said, open it. I opened it up and it was a black outfit like the okay, boys wearing. Okay. Right? <laughs> and I was in. <laughs> But then a couple of months later, I'd been traveling backwards and forwards and I was loving it because I was the only European in the whole club. And Chris said, um, how do you feel about being part of a triad, Colin? And I said, what do you mean a triad? He said, come on. He said, these boys are heavyweights. They bring down opium from Thailand into Malaysia and then <gasps> refine it. And he said, uh, they might have to ask you for a favor once in a while. Oh, right. And that's when I realized it was not what I wanted to do. But I used to wonder whenever I came back from Malaysia, I would get quizzed at the airport. Everything, all my luggage would be gone through again and again and again. And uh, it was only later that I found out through the, um, the federal police that I was under observation. That they were wondering what I was bringing into the country. But that's another story. That forms part of my next, next novel. Okay. But, at, um, yeah, watch this space. Mate, why is it? Look, I've been involved with some drug importation matters and so much of it's coming in through Southeast Asia. Yeah. And some of those countries have got laws where you can be shot for having Absolutely. relatively small amounts Absolutely. of drugs. I, th I believe Thailand's now legalised yeah, cannabis. It has, for cannabis. But so Singapore, that, that, Malaysia, the tiniest amount of, of cannabis even, and you wind up, well, Chambers and Barlow, do you remember those guys? Yes, absolutely. They were shot I, on the beach. They were. They were They were executed. Yeah. Simple. Yeah. But um, where I went to train, uh, there's a big, it was the Pudu prison. And outside there's a big sign saying up, Dada is death, Dada is ganja, whatever. And if you were caught with small amounts, you'd get snuffed. Irrespective wow. of, of whether you're white, black or brown. They didn't care. Wow. It was scary, scary stuff. And still, and still, to this day, a lot of drugs are coming out of that part of the world. Very much even so. Even Malaysia. Yeah. Like, well, the Malaysia Golden carries... Triangle was up there, don't forget, right. too, and that involved several countries. But um, the teachers, they, they were bringing uh, opium or heroin in as well, but opium too, across the border uh, into Malaysia. Uh, I don't know how they were bringing that. I never wanted to know. I never yeah. wanted to know. But as soon as I found out that that was the situation, I thought, no. Nah, I'm, I'm, I'm not going back. I didn't go back at all. I, I had one uh, matter where the security at the airport were actually doing the packaging. So the containers in which the, the contraband needed to be packaged into... Secreted, yeah. ...were left with security at the airport. Wow. And then when they'd returned to fly out a couple of days later, it had been taken care of. So it had been secreted mm. into the aircraft or into baggage or wherever it needed to go. So there was a direct link between the security at the airport that they were using and the operation. Well, you and I have acted for, for people with no names mentioned, etc. One we'd recently, we recently completed. And there were copious amounts of cocaine coming into the country from, I think, probably South America. But also massive amounts coming in. And we went through the heroin scene too. 
I lost a couple of friends to heroin, mm. mates of mine that were in bands, rock and roll bands, mm. etc. But everyone at that age, we're all bulletproof. You know, you're never going to die. It doesn't mm. happen. Mm. Someone else dies. But I lost to a, a couple of my, my younger mates that uh, overdosed on heroin. And I've, it's something I've never tolerated at all. Never. Just don't want to know about it. Heroin? Heroin. Because you've had a certain experience. Yeah. 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 I, um, I have come to the mind of supporting the legalization of drugs across the board. Mm. I agree with you now. <clears throat> I, I've come to that mind. There was one time when I used to qualify that and say everything except for heroin. Mm. And then I learned a bit more and I changed my mind there. And then I used to say everything except for meth. And then I've changed my mind there as well. And I've sort of seen it from a different perspective. I think I was watching some evidence. Just well, it's in the a last... health issue now, isn't it, Mark? That's, it should be a health issue. Yes. But I watched uh, some evidence just recently on a matter that I'm, I'm looking at. And watching the police carry out a search of several people in a car, in a car park, so obviously somebody said, you know, there's there's four blokes sitting in yep. a car park yep. uh, in a car and it's like late in the evening, it's about 10 o'clock in the evening um, and somebody's obviously called police or maybe patrol has seen them but I think somebody must have called because there were two uh, police wagons that pulled up to conduct the search. It seemed like they were very well prepared mm. before they even turned up. And... Um, so the police turned up and they started conducting a search of a vehicle saying that they suspected these drugs in the vehicle, asking all of the occupants of the vehicle to get out, searching all of the occupants. Younger people? Uh, uh, two uh, people that were sort of in their 40s, mm -hmm. uh, two people that were younger, maybe in their mid-20s. And um, they were searching them quite intimately. Uh, each person was searched. Each person was asked for ID. Um, there was other intimate. There weren't cavity searches carried out, were there? No, they were just they were just pat down searches. Okay, but quite thorough pat down yeah. searches. Uh, they did find some drugs in the vehicle, but they could only be deemed as being for personal use. Though there was some meth, there was some coke, there was some MDMA. There but was limited some, amounts. Very limited amounts, and in so it wasn't in one box, for example. Okay, each person had a little bit of something on them, and. They, were, they said they were going out that night. They're going out that night. And they wanted the party. And they've got some drugs for recreational use. When you have a look at the evidence, look at these people, they look like decent young people. So like they've got jobs, but they just want a party when they go out. They've all got jobs. Yeah. They've all got really good jobs. And um, there's no stolen property in the vehicle. There's nothing at all. And so these people are now detained for hours the mm. search took hours while they went through the whole vehicle and all their possessions one by one uh, then taken back to the police station detained further um, and then released and then have charges that are pending and when i look at it closely it's an invasion of privacy disguised as a war on drugs of some sort of benefit to the community now sure they shouldn't be operating vehicles whilst you're on drugs i understand that yeah but if you are indulging in small amounts of recreational drugs, uh, I just don't see it as being any worse than having a few drinks and actually a lot better in some cases. Mm. You know, some of the drugs that the young people are using, whether it be cannabis or MDMA, just don't get associated with violent crime, heroin in particular. You don't see it Well, it's an interesting thing crime. because it's, I think it's Section 79 of uh, traffic legislation that deals with the ingestion of drugs. And you can be shit-faced behind a car and lose your license for 6, 8, 12, a long time. But with that limit, Section 79, three months is the, is the lower limit. Yes. So if you're caught with that small amount, you're, you're cool. And now we've got a situation where people are taking cannabis for relief of pain and goodness knows what else. And I've spoken to a certain friend of yours and my friend who's a magistrate. We've discussed that. Mm. And also some judges I've spoken to about it. And to address that, we're going to have to revamp the, the driving laws to work out what amount of drug you've got to have in your system to become intoxicated. And that's going to be the hard, hard that's yard, a hard isn't one. it? That's a very, very hard one. It is. I mean, if I have a joint and I'm, I'm okay, 
But the next day or the day after I get busted and pulled over and I, I test for it, I'm gone for three months at least. But, you know, they, so they've got that the two different charges. So operate a vehicle whilst under the influence oh, or correct. occupy a vehicle whilst the drug is in your system. Mm. I just can't gel with that second I agree. part, you know, being prosecuted because of the drugs in your system. I do believe that one of the senior magistrates in northern New South Wales resigned last yeah, year. Yeah, I read about that because he, he just he couldn't cop it. Yeah, he said he just doesn't want to be punishing mm. people for for something that happened in the like something you've done in the past. I'd be like, surprised. It's like charging you for having no, a beer last that's Saturday. Right. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if he was pulled over one day and tested to find out what might have been in his system. Absolutely. But I agree with you. Yeah, he couldn't yeah. tolerate it any further because he saw people losing their livelihood. A, a man or a woman's got to go to work the next day and they can't drive. That's right. And that's wrong. Absolutely. Absolutely it's wrong. So I, I think that that, that law, the laws around the war on drugs mm. have just but put police in a very But how do we determine what amount position. of drug you've got to have in your system to render you incapable of driving? It's like you can have two or three beers and, and sobriety test. Touch your finger on your nose. Well, I, see, my dad used to do one you, away, yeah, and then hop along on hop one along leg. One leg. <laughs> <laughs> they used to do test that. Test your balance. Yeah, they used to do that. I think they still do it in the United States. Do if they you really walk this straight one. line? I think they do stuff like that. And I mean, then they draw a crooked line and you've got to follow yeah. that through. Yes, I don't know how they do that. But that's a bizarre thing, isn't it? Yeah, well, I w it would be interesting to see how they deal with it in Portugal because Portugal's decriminalised a whole lot. So how so. they work, all right, that would be interesting legislation to look at. be interesting Can to have Can we a get look. a hold of, of that legislation? I'm sure it wouldn't be hard. I'm I'd sure like to have a good look at that. To see what their rules are around operation of motor yeah. vehicles. And similarly with, with Thailand too. Yeah, yeah. What have they done there with their uh, licensing law or their driving laws? I don't know, but they reckon on every street corner now you can help yourself to some pretty good weed over there in Thailand. <laughs> I I've never been to Thailand before. Have you? Oh, been? I have. Yeah, have? I have been to Thailand. Yeah, I was under this. I was under this uh, impression that Bangkok was like a few buildings, no more than three or four stories high, mm. population and size roughly the size of the Gold Coast, yeah. surrounded by paddy fields, yeah. like in little not villages quite, not quite where you can way. get cheap food. One night in Bangkok, mate. Yeah. One night and, in Bangkok. Yeah, then I learned like <laughs> the population's bigger than Australia. Mm. I thought, oh, my goodness, that's mind-boggling. So I, uh, I don't So what's the any... legislation like in the southern states? Because I've heard all sorts of funny rumours about the fact that you can grow a couple of plants in in um, in ACT, I haven't had a close look at it, but I believe in the ACT you're allowed to grow three plants outdoors. Yeah, uh, and you're allowed to have. I think it's around. It's a considerable amount that you can have on you. I think it's like nearly an ounce of. Oh really? Yeah, an ounce of dried flour. I, I I'm pretty sure it's considerable. Mm. So I do believe you can have a joint in public in the ACT. But there's some. There is some issue with the law in that you're not allowed to buy it or sell it but you can grow your own yeah yeah I'd you like can grow your a, own yeah, i'd like to have a look and south that. australia's got have relaxed a lot too yes so i'm not sure what what it is in south australia they've decriminalized it but wouldn't you think there'd be a federal legislation which covers each state and and provides each state to have to comply with federal requirements as opposed to state legislation. Well, you'd expect you'd expect that to be the case in all of our laws, like it is with our family law. Yeah, yeah. And I have read, and I think that uh, Peter Fitzsimons might be quite an advocate of it. Mm. And this is something that you get shot down for if ever you get shot down for if ever you dare attempt it or suggest it. And that is uh, the abolition of all state governments. Well, I'm I'm in that favour, quite honestly. I am too. Local government. Local government. Yeah. And I, I've, I, I live I live in the country, and I'm uh, part and parcel of local community organisations, and uh, one at Numabar and one where I live. And I was at a meeting last night, and I've just become appointed again as as vice president. And the difficulties that people farmers are having now with state government imposing uh, state legislation by way of um, uh, government impost on the values of their properties, it's making it really hard for, for, for farmers to make a living out of what they do, where you've got to pay a, a government tax on the properties. Mm. So 
I believe that we should have a federal government, yep, and local governments to com- to help local issues. You don't need the middle yeah. the middleman. You don't. That's what I, I totally agree I with too. you. So some uniformity of laws. Absolutely. Uh, however, you know hindsight's of great you know a great benefit, but. There's been the laws are the way they are because of the development of them and the development of our state's institutions. Well, federation brought that around, didn't yeah. it? Yeah. So it's it's a process that's occurred over a couple of hundred years. It's not like we just came up with it. And I think the I think the biggest protest you'd get for wanting to abolish state governments is no state of origin, mate. Like ah. who who could possibly live with that? Well, you can still have a demarcation. <laughs> you can still have a demarcation. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, yeah. The, the issues that we're thinking yeah. about are quite serious issues that make yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. But I think that the real issues that would prevent it from getting over the line wouldn't be as important issues. How dare I say that? I'm going to get hate mail no, for well, talking about uh, state of origin not being a real yeah, issue. I agree. <laughs> but but I, I totally support you because you work out the numbers of public servants that work within the confines of state governments and similarly with the federal government and then with local government, that would mean a lot of people unemployed. Absolutely, absolutely. But that's happened in professions all over the world. It has. Imagine how many people were put out of a job when they invented the wheel. I hadn't, yeah. There's probably people running around saying, get rid of that evil thing. It's going to pull all of us draggers out of out of a job who's going to lay down the rollers and drag the stones there's going to be hundreds of us out of work (laughs) (laughs) what a shit idea (laughs) so it's just a something that recurs over and over again in history i think yeah Mm. it does so tell me any other interesting cases give us give us us another one i'm going to switch to if i can to mention the novels that i'm doing i wanted you to talk about that you've got a few things going on so before we finish up today perfect timing all right wonderful let us know what you've got going on. You okay. and I, I've had a bit of a read. You have, and mm. you've been kind enough, and you've indicated to me you'd like to back the movie. Mm, absolutely, that's what we're doing now. Well, I've got a, <laughs> I've got, I've got a, a novel out which is going for publication called The Singing, and the singing involves um, ritual murder by Indigenous people, and the 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 association of white people who think they're black and black people who think they're white, etc. I believe it's a very very good novel. You've had a read of it. Yeah, I like it. But I'm also on my second novel, which is going to incorporate Jimmy Driscoll and some of the boys that I spoke to you about before, with um, murder and also with me uh, being groomed to bring in heroin or opium from Southeast Asia. So I've woven that into a book as well. That's fantastic. Mm, so that that's the- I'm, Who's publishing the uh, the singing? The 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 first novel, uh, I'm going to a company called Spineless Miracles, I think it's called. And it's run by, uh, sorry, I beg your pardon. I've got a couple of dear friends in the indigenous side of fields and one is Professor Marcus Waters. And I've known Marcus for many, many years. He's a Gamilaroi man at, at Griffith University. Mm-hmm. And Marcus has been kind of, Marcus read this and went nuts over it. This is going back years and years and years. We've been friends for 20 years, I suppose. So he's put me onto this other crowd that I'm going to go and present the book to. And then if they're interested in that, then I'll follow it up with the next novel to go through to them as well too. But you've done a screenplay for the singing as well. I've done a screenplay, yeah, I have. And I've signed up a memorandum of understanding with producers who were very keen to get the thing off the ground and see if we can turn it into a movie. They'll do a short of it and then see if we can titillate some of the major investors around the place yeah. to, to subscribe. Okay. All very exciting. And on top of that, I'm still playing music, yeah. Absolutely. How, how often are you playing music? You're playing live? Uh, I'm not playing live these days, but I'm recording. Okay. And I've got a couple of things up my sleeve. I wrote a song way back called Line Dance, and it's a, it's a parody. But I'm keen on getting a hold of uh, someone who can dress up like a line dancer and take the song out. And I'd, I'd like someone else to sing it, not necessarily okay. me. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and you're still practicing criminal law here, well, with, here but, with us. I am. But I'm here Mark, one of the nicest things that I that you've done for me is to invite me to join your team. And I mean this from my heart. Working with you is an absolute delight. Thank because you, Because you don't bung on side. Ida certainly don't bung on side. What you right. see, same with you, what you see is what you get. But we do aim to help our clients. Yeah. And it's not a usurious business. 
as mm. you know, is mm. not ripping every bloody last shred from them, as many law firms do, regrettably. Mm. They see someone in trouble and they rape them. Probably the case in across all businesses. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But I like to think that we're, sure, we, we need to be paid for what we do. Don't get me wrong there. You've got to live. Mm. But working with you has been an absolute pleasure. Well, mate, you've been a mentor to me since I first started practicing in law here in Queensland. Close friend, mentor. It's like having dad around. Thank you. So thank you so much, mate. Thank you, Mark, and thank you so much for letting me part part of the uh, the chat today. Oh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. You're going to be back. <laughs> Thanks, Colin. Thank Pleasure. You. Pleasure, Pleasure mate. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to another episode of Crime Scene Gold Coast with Guardian Criminal Law. We're enjoying bringing you these podcasts on a weekly basis, and we look forward to bringing you many more. Uh, we've got a Patreon page where you can subscribe. That'll assist us in bringing you future episodes and also any money raised through that goes towards a youth help program that we're running. Uh, we look forward to your company for many months to come. Thank you. Thank you.